back to another episode of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So, episode 48. This episode features Anne Sperling. Anne is a winemaker and wine grower. She manages Sperling Vineyards with her sister. That property has been in the family for four generations. It's been in the, in the family since the 1920s. They've been making wine up there. Uh, so we talk about her upbringing and, and being raised up there and kind of always being around wine and always being involved in the, in the farm and in the property. And we talk about uh, being organic. And the other property that she works with is she's the winemaker at Southbrook Vineyards which is in Niagara in Ontario, and they're certified organic, certified biodynamic. So we talk a little bit about that. And for young female winemakers, she's definitely one of those inspirations. She's, uh, she's someone that a lot of the younger female winemakers and just winemakers in general in Canada look up to as someone who's been in the, in the game for quite a long time. Her, uh, her husband and, and, uh, and Anne own a, a small little vineyard actually down in Argentina as well. So she's, uh, she's well-versed in, in making wines and she's been doing it for, for quite some time. So we also actually talk about there's, uh, there's kind of a move right now with uh, given our current pandemic to pull out the classic bottles and, and say, you know what, screw it. Let's, let's pull out the good stuff and let's pull out some classics and pull out, the, pull out some of the older, older bottles we've been sitting on for a while. And so we kind of talk about that and, and see what she's been drinking lately. So let's get right into it. So how's it going? You know, keeping busy and um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because um, you know it's it's kind of such a contrast when you uh, look at or you know hear what people are saying on social media and then compare it to what your daily life is like because we're super busy and not really trying to figure out what to do with our idle time. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah there's uh, different so realities yeah, so out there right now. Yeah, so we're being essential and out of sync with everybody else. I know that they there was a reprieve for for foreign workers and stuff to come up and uh, and help out in the vineyards and stuff. Yeah, so um, uh, our the guy like so this is the first year we've actually had um, uh, Mexicans. Well, any offshore workers, we've usually hired people who were you know around so the last couple of years we had tapped into some um, Japanese students um, through a network that that a friend of ours hooked us up with and you know but we've had other foreigners but not within a formal program and then um, so this year we said you know we can't take any chances we need to have you know some people that we know will be able to hire back once they're trained and you know, we got to develop, start developing just a bigger skill set amongst our workers. And uh, so we put off some of the work um, so that, you know, we were sure that once they arrived, they'd have full time and all that sort of stuff. So, so we were, you know, it was an unusual circumstance for us. And the guys that we had requested were supposed to arrive on March 18th, which was like the day they shut down the borders, right? <laughs> so they didn't, needless to say, they didn't come. Um, so we've had students and some people that normally work in tourism and things like that, that we've been trying to train and 
and get to uh, catch us up on our workload. And um, so now we are back in line to get uh, Mexicans, but they still haven't called up any of our guys yet. So, um, and then, you know, once they land, they're uh, in two weeks of isolation or quarantine, and then we get them. So we're not sure, you know, maybe it'll be May 1st, if we're lucky that we actually see the workers in the field, so. And this obviously, uh, this obviously is for both the property in Ontario and the property out here in BC then? Um, well, actually, uh, no, I'm uh, right now at Sperling Vineyards. Uh, thankfully at Southbrook, we got our guys before the borders shut and, and um, uh, two out of seven didn't make it, but we can manage with five. So we're going to just stick with those five guys. So we're, um, they, they, they live on house on the property. They've never actually had to be in quarantine or anything because of their, the timing they arrived. So they've been working steady and, um, uh, we've just, you know, kind of trying to keep them happy because they can't leave the property we've just basically said to them you know we we can't none of us you know they can't and we can't afford to have you kind of interacting with the public in any way shape or form so we're doing their grocery shopping for them getting anything they need and you know trying to provide them with some entertainment in the evening usually they were you know occupied happily with soccer matches on tv but <laughs> that's not happening so um yeah so it's um you know so we, we've got a good bunch of guys that we've had for years here so they're understanding and they you know their biggest motivation is to be able to you know keep working and sending money home so they they know that if they get sick that that's all jeopardized so they're they're trying to be understanding yeah that's a good point um that definitely assists their families back home by by staying healthy and staying uh staying on task shall we say yeah so. yeah no for sure for sure you're in a bit of an unusual position because of of basically being involved in three properties in, in three different areas of the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> t tell me how that, how did that come about? Like, how did that kind of, I mean, you originally had the property through your, through your family in Sperling in, in BC. And then how did it kind of grow from there? So, uh, so obviously I grew up on the Sperling Vineyard in Kelowna and uh, we've, we've had that land in our family and have been farming it continuously since the 1880s. And um, um, my, uh, I grew up in the house that was my grandparents' home that was, you know, built in the early 1900s. And that, um, uh, so my grandfather and my, so therefore my mother was raised in that house and, and as was I, and, you know, we continue to, to use, uh, to live in that house and to farm there. Um, and um, so, so that's, you know, I, I mean, basically I grew up while the uh, grape industry became a thing in British Columbia. So we had, um, I guess, in my earliest memories, we had a mixed orchard and grapes and the grapes at that time were the uh, Labrusca types. And then, um, and then in my lifetime, we, we planted much of it into uh, hybrids. And then starting in the late 70s, 
Um, that's when we first planted Riesling. So, you know, all those uh, blocks that we that we now have were planted through that whole period into the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, um, and then in 2008, um, my sister Sue Richardson and I and our husbands decided that, um, you know, along with kind of the support of family members that we would take over managing the vineyard from our parents. And uh, that's when we established the winery. So um, between 1984 and uh, 2008, um, I had developed a career making wine. Um, and uh, so I, I, I started making wine for, you know, one of the big wineries because the early 80s is when um, estate wineries first started, but most of them were very new and mostly family run. And so my first job for about six and a half years was with um, the company that's now called Peller. So it was called Andre's Wines back then. And, um, and then I moved to Cedar Creek and I was there for 10 years. Then, um, then I met my husband, Peter Gamble, and uh, who was Ontario based and in the wine industry here. So I moved in 1995 to Niagara. So that's when I started making wine here. Um, he was with the VQA for 10 years um, as the establishing executive director for the VQA. So um, he, uh, when he kind of finished in that role, he, he started consulting to startup um, producers. So he's been doing a lot of um, startup work in both Ontario and Nova Scotia. Um, and so he, and then, you know, so that's taken him out to Nova Scotia. He works, he's currently working on a, on a standards project for the industry in Nova Scotia. So essentially developing the equivalent of a VQA system, um, for the industry out there. And, um, so, you know, we've just always had the bigger picture of, um, of viticulture and winemaking, um, in, you know, in our, in our sites and in our work. So, um, so I've done a fair number of startup projects, including Sperling Vineyards and including uh, working with Clos de Soleil and their startup. And, um, and then same here in Ontario with Malavoir and a few others. And then I've been involved with Southbrook since 2005. So, um, so yeah, it's just kind of, you know, um, Having, the, I think, did, having the bigger picture in mind, having uh, the kind of interest in organic viticulture and kind of a continual learning there and kind of pushing that envelope with, with uh, people that were ready for it. And, you know, it's always kind of the, the one of the deciding factors with the people that we work with is, is the, the interest in uh, either establishing organically or moving to organic production. So, yeah, it's just, you know, kind of one of those things that, you know, you, you just keep doing one more thing. <laughs> and, um, um, and then with uh, the project in Argentina, that's kind of the only one that Peter and I actually do together. And, you know, we also happen to be owners in that project too. 
but um, but that's just much more of a geeky winemaker passion project um, that um, that we we you know probably foolishly couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, that vineyard is uh, this year. It's two or sorry, it's a hundred years old. It was planted in 1920. It's um, 100% um, Malbec, uh, own rooted, so 100% vinifera DNA. That um, when it was planted in the 1920s was, um, you know, sort of part of an era of luxury winemaking in Argentina. Um, they were like the fifth most important economy in the world at the time. So, you know, there was lots of uh, fine wine consumed there. And, uh, and our vineyard was part of that kind of philosophy and has continued to, you know, contribute and make great wine since then. So, so, um, so it was, and it's, it's tiny, right? So it's only, it's three hectares. So in Argentina, most producers wouldn't be interested in buying such a small piece of land. So we were able to, you know, afford it, but also to get it um, as foreigners, um, even though it's such a prestigious planting. Yeah, easy to, easy to kind of sneak your way in there, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and uh, you know, we, we had to do things like have Argentines, you know, present themselves as the buying entity um, for a company that we had, you know, that had established there and things like that, just so that, you know, we, we could buy it and, um, and at a, at also at a reasonable price. Right. So, um, so yeah, it was pretty cool um, learning that process, but also studying the, the vineyards there. Cause, uh, ultimately we looked at over 200 properties, some planted, some not planted, some with old vines, some with other, you know, mixed plantings, all kinds of things just to partly to, to learn the, the market there, but also to, um, um, you know, just understand better all of the various, um, um, sub appellations and and uh, potential. Interesting. Uh, that's kind of a cool. I mean, and then you got warm climate versus cool climate, and and just kind of all those other factors. That um, I mean, obviously your your knowledge base is is so versatile from from being up in Canada that that going down there and tackling that tackling the different varieties is is you've, you've always got the experience. So. Yeah. Well, and that's the, I mean, that's, what's kind of, well, it is fun about either doing like wine related travel, like going to other regions, meeting producers, that kind of thing, or, you know, it being able to work in other regions is that even if you learn something or experience something that's not directly transferable, it's, it's there in your kind of reference and database that you can, you can pull from to problem solve, you know, in another, in another region or with another variety or, you know, things like that. So, so it's, you know, those experiences are never wasted. And, and I always encourage, you know, new winemakers or young winemakers to, to take their time to, you know, do their stages internationally and work for different people in different places so they can, you know, build on their database. Cause you know, in, in most situations you get one harvest per year. And, uh, 
you know, in a lifetime, it doesn't, it doesn't add up to that many harvests. So the more you can get and the more diversity you can, you can get is, uh, is helpful. My, um, my cousin, just a slight tangent, but my cousin is a winemaker in Ontario. And for the first few years, she, like a lot of people would do the, you know, switch over and go to New Zealand and Australia and then come back and at least you can, like you said, try and get two harvests or two, two cracks in one year. Right. So, um, I, so I guess for you, obviously being in wine your whole life, there was never really, a lot of people talk about that epiphany moment, you know, and, um, I guess for you, you're in the kind of gradual appreciation, you know, being in wine throughout your life. There was there ever something that really hit you uh, at the start. You know what I mean? Well, I, uh, I think what was the big, uh, a big factor was just that there was the opportunity was there. Like it was obvious that the industry was establishing and it was going somewhere and, um, and, and, you know, so being kind of swept up in that enthusiasm. So, you know, because we were growing Riesling starting in the 70s, there were uh, visiting winemakers um, that would come to the house, come to the vineyard, you know, talk about how the vinifera was different from the hybrids that we've been growing and, you know, doing those kind of um, training sessions with my dad and my uncle who ran the farm. And um, uh, so, so, you know, it was obvious that everyone was on that learning curve, but that things, you know, that the the industry was growing. So, um, so I think, you know, because in our, I I had um, as a, as children, as teenagers, we worked in the vineyard and we were, it was always an important part of our daily life, but also, you know, it was always part of dinnertime conversation and, um, and, uh, you know, just seeing how the wines, how the wineries were becoming established and, and uh, particularly with estate wineries, because then that was where, suddenly you know rather than just being a commodity grape that went into massive blends this was now a vineyard going into a bottle of wine and so that kind of excitement was was there so you know we we in addition to the grapes that we grew we also grew a lot of vegetables that we then preserved ourselves so everyday cooking everyday eating was tasting our terroir you know whether it was in lettuce or tomatoes or or beans but you know we we knew that just innately from from our daily life and so being able to do that with the the grapes that we grew um was an exciting possibility did you you recognize that back then when you were like a teenager like that you know there's a lot of meaning behind that and and i think like for myself, like as a teenager, you don't, sometimes you don't recognize those moments or you don't recognize the, the importance of what, what's going on and, and having those dinner conversations and you know what I mean? The recognizing that this, this is something special, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think I did, like, I don't know that I just had a, you know, an epiphany moment that said I can do this, you know, sort of thing. But, um, uh, one of our longtime family friends was uh, the Heist family, George and Trudy, and you know their sons were going off to university in Germany to study winemaking, and um, they had uh, been hairdressers. So you know you'd be sitting in the chair, 
and you know they'd be talking to your mom but you were listening to all these things that was you know that were going that was going on in their in their lives so you know cutting hair for cash flow and and um you know but really planning their their winery um and uh vineyard expansions and all of that so so i think you know it was it was a big um it was just it was just the you know collectively what was happening um in the in the region that uh you know that that was pointing me in that direction and you know like i think from the the that winemaking is uh um it's a multifaceted. So you get the the benefit of the seasonality and the changes that are happening. So you don't do the same thing every day as, as a job. It's the sensory part of it, which, you know, I think already I was, you know, kind of well-trained when it came to, you know, food and cooking and doing all the stuff that we did every day at home. You know, we were all, um, we were all uh, critics of, of what was being prepared in the kitchen, whether we were doing it ourselves or whether it was our mom or, or our aunties that, you know, came and, and um, helped out all the time. And, um, you know, so there was, there was, it was just kind of a natural extension to take it from, you know, the dinner table to the, to the, to a bottle of wine. We want it to be a family operation and we want it to have that longer term view for opportunity for family members so um so the you know that that i'm not there every day is is part of that process i want to lend my experience and and oversight um but but not to you know be necessarily making all the micromanagement decisions um you know they're they're capable of it and and they should also you know, learn to fly. Right. So it's, um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, so that, that it works for us, um, as a, as a management group with uh, my sister and brother-in-law too. Um, I just had a quick thought because I guess for a lot of people right now that are in, in isolation and are trying to limit, you know, limit contact with others, you know, we've been, we've been drinking some wine at home and we've been, we've been, saying, screw it. I'm, I'm drinking this. It's, I've been sitting on this for a while and you know, <laughs> now's, now's as good a time as any. Um, is there anything you've opened recently that you're like, you know what, I'm just going to have this, you know, I've, I've been waiting on this or you know what, I'm just gonna open this up. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I think we're, we're doing it almost every night, you know, certainly, uh, looking forward to that on a Friday night to, uh, um, um, open stuff that's been in the cellar for a while. Um, one of the wines that I think uh, that, that, well, that I know that, um, that we made at Sperling Vineyards in 2010, it was a bit of an experiment, but it's, it's a wine that I think is perfect for the times. And, um, and, and uh, it's a late harvest wine that's made from Pinot Gris. So a bit unusual that way, but also um, it's, it's not super sweet. It's a bit drier. So it's very full bodied and uh, um, you know, it's kind of the perfect sort of cheese and, and uh, probably some dried fruit and nuts um, alongside it. But um, you, you sort of have to have, the opportunity to linger to enjoy a bottle of wine like that right and uh so that's one of the ones that uh that we haven't released yet but 
it'll be coming out in, you know, in the next couple of weeks. I appreciate the time, uh, Anne, and uh, thanks. Thanks again for this. Yeah, no problem. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, friendsofthevine.podbean.com. Take care. Have a glass for me. <laughs>